Well, what is up, New City? My name is Christian Schlinker. I am the Associate Pastor of Community Life here at the church, uh, and I'm really excited to get to bring God's Word to you this morning. Uh, if we haven't met yet, I'm new, uh, and this is just my second time being up here, and I'm just really excited to be with you all. Um, before we jump into seeing what God has to say to us this morning, let's just spend a moment and read the text. This comes from John three sixteen through 21. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Jesus, thank You. Lord, thank You for um, Your grace to let us gather over distance this morning. Lord, even as it snows outside, God, we're just thankful for the snow. We're thankful for the moisture in the desert. Lord, we pray this morning for our brothers and sisters around the world, for those who are listening wherever they are, for those who are hearing Your Word preached Um, all around the world. Lord, we pray specifically for our brothers and sisters in Myanmar that are um, facing persecution, that are facing this coup and some of these things that are coming. Lord, we pray for strength for them. But Lord, we pray this morning too that as we hear your word, that you would open our ears to what you have to say to us, that you would help us uh, to hear the good news of the gospel, that your light would shine in our darkness. Jesus, thank you. Thank, for, thank you for your good and your lovely and your gracious gifts. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, if you know me, and if you get to know me over time, one thing you will come to know is that I am terrified of the ocean. And maybe it's because I grew up in the desert and I've always been landlocked. And I'm actually not terrified of the beach. I love being on the beach. I love being near the water. I love dipping my uh, toes in the water and walking along the sand but I'm terrified of the open water. And I've tried. In fact, if you go with me I pro- to the beach, I probably won't go swim. And I think I have pretty good reason to be terrified of the ocean, personally. If you uh, look, it's some estimates say that 95% of the ocean is unexplored. Although some people think that estimate is way too high that it's really like 98% of the ocean is unexplored. And that's not even including the things that are explored in the ocean and the things we know about that are terrifying, like giant squids fighting whales, or megalodon, or uh, the depths that are deeper than our tallest mountains. See, the ocean is a scary place. And actually, I've even taught my daughter, I've discipled my daughter to start being scared of the ocean as well. Uh, If you ask her, what do you tell a shark? My three-and-a-half-year-old will reply, don't eat me, shark, which is probably my best moment of family discipleship, if I'm being honest. And it really came into clarity for me 
this fear of the ocean a few years ago when I read the book In the Heart of the Sea by Nathaniel Philbrick. And in this book, it describes the true story of the whale ship Essex. In uh, 1819, the whale ship Essex sailed away from the shores of Nantucket. And as it sailed away, it went on a a two-and-a-half-year voyage where it went to explore, looking for wealth, hunting sperm whales, looking for their oil, and also adventure. And Thomas Nickerson, who was the uh, cabin boy at the time, wrote this in his journal as he left the shores. He said this, Then it was that I, for the first time, realized that I was alone upon the wide and unfeeling world, without one relative or friend to bestow one kind word upon me. And Nickerson knew how, he never knew how right these words would be as he wrote them in his journal. The ship was doomed from the start. In their first few months, they hit a massive storm that damaged the ship. And after all the repairs they made, stopping at an island, they went out into the fishing seas to find that there was no whales to be found. And so in a desperate attempt to recoup their losses, they actually went to the South Pacific Sea. And in the South Pacific Sea, they started to hunt the whales there. But early on in their hunt, one day... A rogue whale came and struck the ship twice and sunk it. The middle of the ocean, no land to be seen. It says that they gathered around the sunken wreck in their whale boats, wondering what they should do next, where they should go. In the book, it describes as night fell that they didn't want to leave the wreckage because that was their only point of reference and they knew the terrors of the night. And this was just the beginning of their story. It goes on and on. I won't give you the whole story, but it was actually such a horrific tale, such a sensational tale, that this true story became the basis for Herman Melville's Moby Dick. Thomas Nickerson never knew how right he would be in his feeling of being adrift in a wide and unfeeling world. That he didn't know how true it would be as he floated aimlessly in the water, in the dark of night, Now I'm guessing that none of us in this room or no one watching at home has ever been on a ship that's been sunk by a whale. And if so, please give me a call. I'd love to hear your story. And we've probably never been stuck in the middle of the ocean wondering what to do next. But we all know that feeling of unknown, wondering what to do with what is coming next. We know that feeling of darkness that weighs on our shoulders in different seasons. And this has certainly been the case with the pandemic as we wonder if we're going to be okay. Because we know the reality of darkness, the unknown that accompanies the night. And we wonder if there's a light that can shine in our darkness. This despair and darkness would have certainly been the case with the Jews at the time of Jesus. See, they had been under the oppression of the Roman Empire. They had been under the oppression of people. They had been waiting for a Messiah, someone that would come and deliver them from the empire, that would establish the rule and reign of God over the earth. And here comes this leader, Jesus, starting to do miracles, perform wondrous signs, who seems that he might be that Messiah the one that they've all been waiting for. 
And it's with these hopes and anticipations and these fears of the unknown that one figure comes under the cover of night to meet Jesus. He's wondering if Jesus is the one they've all been waiting for, but he's going to get a much different response from Jesus than he expected. So before, but before we jump into the story this morning, we have to first take a look at where we've been so far. See, so far we've been introduced to God in a new light. It says in the opening words of John that the Word, the person and power by which all was created, the one that drives back the darkness, that Word, the light, has come to be with us. That God has come to be amongst humanity. Or as Eugene Peterson puts it in the, uh, his paraphrase, the message that God moved into the neighborhood. And what's beautiful is that as Jesus walks around on earth, he reveals God's power and nature to the people around him. Last week we saw an example of this where Jesus goes into a party and takes care of the needs of the bridegroom, showing that he cares about ordinary parties by ordinary people celebrated in ordinary life. And after this party, Jesus heads to Jerusalem where he actually goes into the temple and cleanses it from impurity. And then after this, it says that he shows miracles and signs to the people. And because of this, the end of the passage in John 2 says that because of these things, people start to believe. So this figure comes as as he sees the work and the power of Jesus And it's interesting because this work and power of Jesus would have certainly been divisive. People would have been worried about what Jesus was doing. The Roman authorities, the Jewish leaders would have been wary and keeping an eye on Jesus' impact in the world around them. Because they've seen messiahs come and go. And they're wondering, is this Jesus something more? So this one figure sneaking under the cover of night comes to see if that's true. It says this, starting in verse 1 of chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. See, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you not the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. And if I have told you these earthly things, you do not believe. How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, 
so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Nicodemus is this figure that comes to Jesus under the cover of night. And right away we can learn a few things about Nicodemus. First, it's clear that he's a respected man and leader in society. He was a Pharisee, a, a part of the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling council of Jewish leaders. And what's interesting about this is that it means that he probably is somebody of great financial wealth and ability. He's somebody that has a lot of power and influence, enough that he should sit on this council, because you don't put people on a council if they're ne'er-do-wells. He's somebody that is, uh, that is esteemed in society, probably a culture maker in Jewish society, one who people hung on his very words. It might have been someone like a Steve Jobs is or a Dave Chappelle, somebody who is not only excellent in what they do, but are seen as people who shape the cultural zeitgeist. But maybe he was something more as well. Later on in the passage, Jesus, when he's addressing him, says, you are the teacher of Israel. If that's the case, that means that he's probably like a leader of leaders. He was probably a respected authority, the, your favorite, or the person that your favorite leader loves. If that's the case, then he would be less like Steve Jobs and more like a Barack Obama. Someone that has kind of transcended celebrity, that celebrities and authorities look to as a leader in society. And even so, this transcendent leader Nicodemus is intrigued by this small-time teacher that's performing wondrous deeds from Galilee. And so he comes to visit Jesus, but as he arrives, he arrives at night under the cover of darkness. See, social embarrassment probably would have been at the forefront of his mind. He's hoping to learn about Jesus without facing the scrutiny of others, or maybe even seen as endorsing Jesus' ways. It reminded me of when I was in high school. I had this girl that I briefly dated that uh, both my parents didn't approve of and my friends didn't love, but I, so I would sneak out at night to see her and hang out with her. Like we would go places that I knew my friends probably weren't. And it's kind of that idea, right? This idea that he's trying to secret away to meet Jesus. He wants to go and not be seen by others. It seems that they're the only two having this conversation. But John is also doing something else really important here that we cannot miss. See, all throughout the Gospel of John, anytime the word darkness appears, it doesn't just mean literal darkness, although it certainly means that, but it also means spiritual darkness. That there's something going on in Nicodemus. There's some kind of darkness, not just the darkness of night, but some kind of darkness that's plaguing his soul. And it's in this darkness that he arrives to meet Jesus. And as he comes to meet Jesus, he uses the title of honor, rabbi, or teacher. It's almost like he's starting off to flatter Jesus, to give small talk. But Jesus sees right through this. Because he's not just a mere man, he's Emmanuel, God with us. And as he goes to speak, he sees right through Nicodemus' statement, right into his questions, and just begins answering Nicodemus' questions. See, he, Nicodemus would have come wondering, are you the Messiah? Are you the one that we've been waiting for? Will you overthrow the Roman Empire? And Jesus answers him by saying, to see the kingdom of God, you have to be in the kingdom of God. You have to be born again. It's a little bit like Albuquerque. In Albuquerque, whenever I go travel places and I tell people I'm from Albuquerque, people often want to know what is Albuquerque like because most people haven't visited here. 
and I tell them it's hard to explain. Because if you've lived in Albuquerque, you know Albuquerque is an awesome place and it's a very strange place. It's multicultural and diverse, multilingual in a lot of ways, and it's totally different than any other place. And in the same way, Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is totally different than any other place. And in order to see the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. You have to have a spiritual regeneration that saves and rescues. And actually to describe this, he uses two Old Testament images. The first is Ezekiel 36, where there's this picture of water and spirit that cleanses and restores Israel. That Israel must be regenerated. But the second is Numbers 21, where Jesus describes how this will occur. Numbers 21, there's this story where the people disobey God. They blaspheme against God in the desert, as the Israelites tend to do. And after they do so, there's a consequence where these fiery poisonous serpents go through the camp. And as they're going through the camp and biting people, God in his grace provides a path of healing. He tells Moses, put, on, uh, put this bronze serpent on a, st- on a staff, raise it high above the camp. And anytime someone's bitten, they can look to the bronze serpent and they can see and they'll be healed. So there's this picture, right, of they fix their eyes on God's grace and they're healed in Israel. And now Jesus is saying in the same way, for all who fix their eyes on me, they will be healed. The Son of Man must be raised up, is the picture that's given. They'll be saved from the cosmic darkness. And when Nicodemus hears this, all of these things that Jesus is saying to him, he's has a stunned skepticism. His first answer answer to Jesus seems to be one of sarcasm. You have to be born again. Come on, how is someone born again? But as it goes on, he just seems to wrestle with what is actually happening here. And the reason why is probably not the born again statement. In fact, the people of Israel would have known that they needed a spiritual regeneration. They understood the concept of being born again. They knew that they required cleansing by God to save them. But what's shocking to Nicodemus is probably who's welcome into the kingdom of God. See, it says everyone needs to be reborn. That the Spirit is like the wind, that it blows wherever it will, which actually implies boundaries beyond the Jewish people. That everyone who sees the Son of Man lifted up, Jew or Gentile, will be saved. And this would have been a shock to a Jewish leader because he would have thought that based just simply upon his ethnicity, and his background, and his upbringing, and his status, that he could be saved. But instead, Jesus tells him, you too need to look and see the Son of Man hanging. He didn't think that those pagans, those unclean Gentiles, were in the same boat as him. He didn't realize the darkness that he had. He didn't realize what he needed to be saving from. Yet Jesus says that all people, no matter the background, are invited to have faith in Jesus and be saved. And in what seems to be Nicodemus' stunned silence after this statement, Jesus presses on and gives maybe the most beloved passage and description of the gospel in all of Scripture. John 3.16-21, through 21, where it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
Now, if you grew up in the church, you probably memorized two verses. The verse that everyone memorizes is this, this one, John 3.16 and John 11.35, because it's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. But this passage is so beloved because it sums up the simple gospel. And so Jesus, as he closes out his conversation with Nicodemus, sums up what he has come to do. That God loved the world, so he sent his son Jesus to live in it, to reveal his nature. But that God didn't just simply reveal his nature, but that he, Jesus would die for our sins, and in doing so, not condemn us, but rather rescue us from the powers of darkness. He points out our status at the end of the passage. This is the part we often skip over when we read John 3. It says that we've been people enslaved by darkness, preferring darkness to the light. Yet just like in John 1, the light has shone into the darkness so that we may walk in the light. And it's kind of with this cryptic ending, this cryptic invitation that it ends. The story ends without us knowing Nicodemus' response. It ends without us knowing what's coming next. Although it seems pretty clear that Nicodemus doesn't believe yet. It seems pretty clear that he's wrestling with what Jesus is telling him. And while he's encountered Jesus and heard the good news of the gospel, he's still grappling with what God is doing. And I actually think this passage invites us to grapple as well. In fact, I think it invites us to ask two questions. The first question is this. What is your darkness? What is your darkness? See, all of us have darkness in our lives. We just have varying degrees of our awareness of it. Just like Nicodemus, we may arrive this morning under the cover of darkness, not wanting anyone to know that we're here watching a service wrestling with something. Sometimes we're acutely aware of our darkness, right? Maybe it's an addiction, a mental health struggle, uh, a relational struggle, or some kind of deep brokenness in your life that has a firm grasp and you're not so sure how to get out. Maybe that darkness is so acute that it's all you can do to be here listening this morning. But other times, we're not actually sure how dark things are for us. We're unaware of where we're actually at until we stop and look at it. We know that maybe something's a little bit off but we don't know how off it really is. We're bad at recognizing our grief and our sadness and our brokenness in life and how it weighs on us. This has been revealed with COVID. This is an unofficial survey, but yesterday I looked up the Atlantic and the New York Times to see what they'd written about grief in the last year, grief and sadness and loss and struggle. And the, those two news uh, sources have been around a combined 332 years. And in the last year, based on looking at their archives, they've written more about grief in the last year than they have in their entire history beforehand. Christianity Today also picked up on this trend. Next week, they're actually launching a podcast about grief and loss and what that looks like. See, this darkness has become a part of our lives recently as we lose relationships and friends and loved ones during the pandemic. And our darkness can be difficult to decipher. See, all of us have darkness, no matter our status or our place in the world or our perception of how we're doing. No matter where we are, we all grapple or struggle with something, and we all have darkness in some way. 
I was thinking about this through the story of Fred Rogers this week, uh, the beloved Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers is just a beloved figure for most people. You probably grew up watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And he loved children. He is seen as a saint, a modern-day saint, among others. He was a Presbyterian pastor. But one of the things that's always struck me about Fred Rogers is the end of his life. The end of his life, it's recorded that some of his final words where he leaned over and asked his wife, am I a sheep? In doing so, he's actually quoting a passage from Exodus 34 where it says there's the sheep and the goats in the world. Talking about those who follow God and those who are against God. And in that moment on his deathbed, he leaned in and asked, am I a sheep? Wondering what his identity was. Being acutely aware of this person who everyone else saw as saintly. Who everyone else saw as near perfect. Acutely aware of his own darkness. Wondering at the end, Am I a sheep? See, even at the end of his life, even after living such a moral and good and upstanding life, he knew he was in need of saving. But what's so interesting about this question is that Mr. Rogers can ask this first question and grapple with it because he knows the answer to the second question. See, the second question that we have to ask ourselves is do you know the light? It's not only what is your darkness, but do you know the light? John, the book of John begins with this beautiful exposition on the light where it says that the light has shined in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Sometimes it's translated, it will not overcome it. So here, here we see that Jesus will overcome darkness, defeating the cosmic forces of sin and death. It's a beautiful way to open up the book of John but the thing that's interesting is that opening passage, while it's beautiful and poetic and lovely, can feel a bit cosmic and not always grounded. And we wonder, can Jesus overcome my darkness? But this is where this passage matters to us because it's not merely that Jesus will drive back the darkness of the cosmos, but rather that Jesus will drive back the darkness in our lives. That Jesus will overcome the brokenness out of a deep love for us. That he saves us from sin and death and damnation. That he rescues us both in the here and now and promises one day to make all things new. See, the light drives back the darkness, even the darkness in us. I always think of this passage and this image through the lens of Carlsbad Caverns. I don't know if you've ever been to Carlsbad Caverns, but you can go down into these deep series of caves and wander around. It's beautiful. It's lovely. But you can go on this tour that has this one uh, terrifying but beautiful moment. They'll take you into a cave on this tour, and they'll talk about pure darkness. And then they flip the lights off. And after they flip the lights off, you can hold your hand as close to your face as you want, and you cannot see it. You can't see anything. But after a brief moment, silence of people kind of moaning in the darkness, wondering if they'll ever turn the lights back on, the guide will light a match. And that match, that brief flicker of a flame, lights up the entire room. Because light drives back darkness. See, darkness has picked a battle that it's already losing in Jesus. It's picked a battle that it cannot, that cannot win. It's picked a battle that's going to bring about its own defeat. 
Because the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot and will not overcome it. It's a beautiful picture. See, knowing the de- your darkness in the depths of the night brings a beauty to how God will overcome even that. that. How Jesus will overcome even the darkest and direst moments in our reality by His light. Yet, if the text invites us to ask these questions, then these truths raise one more question in us, which is this. Is this for me? Is it for me? I don't know if you've been in the forest at night before and you're walking around and someone stumbled upon you with a flashlight. But when you're in darkness and a light all of a sudden shines on you, it can be a little bit disorienting. And you kind of wonder, is this for me? Is this for something else? Is this for what's going on here? And in the same way, when we're confronted by the light of Jesus, it makes us wonder, what's going on here? Can I embrace this light as well? Maybe you're here and you're wondering this morning, is this for me? Can God overcome my darkness? Can God rescue from my, me from my sin and death? Can God deal with my doubts? You may be thinking that God doesn't even know what's going on in my life. In the depths of the darkness in my heart and my soul. The ways that I see myself failing as a parent. Or the ways I fail as a husband or wife. The ways that I've embraced a false identity. The anxiety and depression that I feel in the times of unknown. The fear of what normal looks like at some point. Or even the loneliness that some of us feel on a day like Valentine's Day. Can God save me? Do I belong? Yet this is the beauty of the gospel. See, out throughout the passage, Jesus emphasizes over and over and over that this call to believe is an invitation. It's not based on your merit or gifts. It's not based on what you've done or left undone. Instead, it's based on Jesus, on whose you are and who you are in light of him. See, now all who can see Jesus hanging on the tree throughout history are invited to be set free. Jesus did not come to save some of the world, just a select few or the chosen, but Jesus came to save the whole world. That For all the men and women that call on Him, that call upon His name, that they would be saved. And we see this all throughout John. The Samaritan woman, a societal and ethnic outcast, Jesus came for her. He came for the Gentile official, a religious pagan thought to be outside God's covenant. He came for the cripple, rejected and seen as unclean. He came for the man born blind through the product of sin, thought to be through the product of sin. He came for the zealot fighting the empire, the tax collector working for the empire's gain, and the cautious religious leader meeting Jesus under the cover of night because he's afraid of being seen as in cahoots with him. And if this is true, if Jesus came for all of these people, then he came for you. He came for you. See, the light came for us. The light drives back the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. See, God is not just defeating the cosmic darkness, but the darkness in our own lives. This is a word for us For all of us who call on the name of Jesus, this is the promise. And if you're not sure where you are with Jesus this morning, 
if you're wrestling with this reality of his, if this is for you, know that you're in good company. See, Nicodemus ends the story without knowing Jesus. He doesn't understand what Jesus was saying. And this conversation actually just merely starts a journey for him. But at the end, at the end, after all this bafflement over what Jesus is saying, at the end, at the end of the cross, after Jesus dies, we see Nicodemus there laying Jesus in a tomb. An ultimate sign of reverence and belief. Nicodemus was on a journey and he pressed on. So I'd encourage you this morning, wherever you're at, if you're wondering, is this for me? If you need the reminder of the good news of the gospel, press on. Press on with Jesus. Maybe it's time for us to embrace and learn about Jesus. This coming season as a church, throughout the Lent season, we'll be reading the Gospel of John. And I'd invite you to pick up the Lent guide, to go online and grab it, and to read through the Gospel of John with us. To see who Jesus is and what he's doing and the ways that he speaks and into our doubts. But know this morning, whatever you hear, if you can take this away, hear this, that this light of Jesus is for you and that it drives back the darkness, that it's for all that call upon Jesus. This week as I was prepping for the sermon, I was reminded of the old hymn, Come Ye Sinners, where it says this, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, full of power. He is able, he is able, he is willing. Doubt no more. Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, then you'll never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous. Sinners, Jesus came to call. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you that while we were people consumed by darkness, that your light shone for us, that your light came for us, that you came to be amongst us. And Lord, I pray that this morning, wherever we are at, that God, you would meet us in the places that our darkness still has a foothold and shine your light. Lord, I pray for everyone who's listening online, God, that is, as people wrestle with this reality, Lord, that you would shine your light into the darkness. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for all of the good things that you've done and that your light came to be amongst us and that you moved into the neighborhood. It's in your name we pray. Amen.